Welcome to Kogari, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners. Journals, magazines and associates from Belarus to Belgium, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Rika Kinga-Pop and today I'm talking to historian Aro Velmet, editor of the Estonian culture journal Vikerkar, Jerzy's longtime partner. In the essay Promise and Peril, Aro tells the story of a yellow fever vaccination campaign that went horribly wrong in French West Africa in the 1940s. In our most recent publishing, Aro participated in a discussion which Jerzy published under the title Renaming is about respect, with curators and historians from Estonia addressing race and colonial heritage in museum artifacts. Otto also co-curated Eurozine's vast focal point, Room Temperature, Housing in Crisis. You can find links to these in the show notes. But let's get into it because my guest woke up early for this conversation. He's on the west coast of the US. I'm in Vienna. Hello, Otto. How are you? Where are you? What are you up to right now? I am sleepy uh, because it's uh, eight in the morning right now where I am in Los Angeles, California, and I'm getting ready to travel back to Estonia in about a week, which is uh, very exciting. This is the most travel I've done in the past uh, year or so because I was I was stuck in Estonia for uh, the better part of the pandemic. But this is much more what my life looks like normally, which is being sort of in transit, spending, you know, half the year or eight months in in California, where I teach at the University of California, and then four months in Estonia, where my family is, and uh, where I edit Vikergar, your partner journal. Indeed. So that's how Aro becomes an important member of the Eurozine network of, uh, well, editors in quite the sense, Eurozine's network of cultural journals and the community around them of authors and editors. So you're in Los Angeles, but not going to casting calls, but teaching history, right? Tell me this a little is, bit. This is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your favorite topics. We recently published two articles by you, one by you, one with you. One of them is an interview. And this centers around your favorite topic. You basically deal with colonialism in its memory, right? Uh, yes, pretty much. I'm a, partly a historian of colonialism and partly a historian of, of science, technology and medicine. So both of these these articles really touch on, on both of these topics. So one article on the politics of vaccination and this mass vaccination campaign in, in French Africa in the 1940s really is drawn from my primary research, which is on the history of, of bacteriology and colonialism. And the, the other one is is just sort of me bringing my expertise on colonialism to bear on this really wonderful exhibition that the Estonian National Art Museum uh, just put on, on uh, histories of race and colonialism in Estonia. I guess the thing that both of these have in common, besides the fact that they touch on colonialism, is that they in various kinds of ways deal with the history of humanitarianism, which is really what I'm interested in um, in my research are these ideas that have um, a high level of social prestige in modern Western societies, such as public health, um, where the kind of common understanding is is that, well, um, 
you know, these are surely good things that modernity has brought to people, right? Vaccinations, um, you know, a more nuanced understanding of, um, of racial relations, you know, all of these kinds of things. There was this, this parliamentarian in the Estonian parliament who um, kind of ironically said, uh, with regards to one of the things at this exhibit, that, well, if, if Estonian doctors um, participated in the colonial project and, and traveled to the Belgian Congo or, or the French colonies in equatorial Africa, surely that must have been a good thing. Surely, you know, we can't use that as a way of somehow associating Estonia with a with a complicated legacy of colonialism. And, and that's precisely what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what do doctors actually do? What do humanitarians actually do? How do we actually think about the relationship of these kinds of, uh, of supposedly benevolent activities in relationships to things like colonialism and war and, uh, and inequality? And modernization, I guess, and the whole idea of catching up and bringing civilization, which the concept itself is very sort of one-sided assuming that civilization is what the West considers that and that can just be exploited. I guess that's the underlying idea that's still in action, pretty much. So the first article we're talking about, and we're going to link to both of them in the show notes, is titled Promise and Peril, Mass Vaccination in Colonial Africa. And it's drawing on your book, Pasteur's Empire, which was published in 2020. And you deal with, you write the short history of a yellow fever vaccination campaign as you have already mentioned, in the French colonies in Africa in the 90s, which were fast-tracked basically in a medical race of inventions, right? Or sort of a patent race. Tell us about this and what significance it has with the caveat that this is not going to be an encouraging piece for bare feet, everyday anti-vaxxers. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely, at the very least, a very complicated story. Um, so in a, in a lot of ways, this sounds like it's, it's a real success story. In the 1920s, there is a huge outbreak of yellow fever, um, which is a terrible tropical disease, you know, along with malaria, one of the biggest killers in, you know, equatorial areas. Uh, so there's a huge outbreak in uh, West Africa, not just in French West Africa, but also British West Africa. And as a result these two organizations, the French Pasteur Institute and the American Rockefeller Foundation, both embark on a mission to finally develop a vaccine for this viral hemorrhagic disease. And they are both successful. By the end of the 1930s, both have a viable vaccine prototypes. Neither is perfect. They have various kinds of side effects. But the French feel confident enough to roll out a mass vaccination campaign um, with a goal of immunizing everyone in French West Africa, some 14, 15, 16 million people. Uh, the demographics are a little bit fuzzy on this. In 1939, so, and, and they do it. Over the course of World War II, you know, which is particularly remarkable, as the world is fighting this massive global war, the French immunize 14 million people and effectively eradicate yellow fever from the area for a good couple of decades, basically until the next generation who's not immunized comes of age. And, you know, this is in effect, the first example of a real mass vaccination campaign in, in global history with the goal of actually covering everyone on a certain territory. So in a lot of ways, this should be a real success story. Now, 
the problem with just stopping the story there is that back in the 1930s, when the French are testing this vaccine in Paris, they receive reports of some fairly intense side effects of people developing meningoencephalitis and very high fevers, body aches, convulsions. There are people who become comatose for several days, and this is really very concerning for all of them. And then in the 1930s, it seems like they've, they've managed to somehow eliminate these side effects. When they trial the vaccine en masse in French Africa, they report back that, you know, everybody tolerated the vaccine super well. There were no major side effects to be observed. And, and these kinds of reports um, continue throughout the mass vaccination campaign itself. The interesting thing is that after World War II, similar reports start propping up all over the place. And if anything, they're more serious than before. Now we're, we're looking at small children who receive the vaccine and then perish afterwards. And we are really talking about quite substantial numbers here. We're, we're looking at places in Lagos, in, in British Nigeria, in the 1950s, in Dakar, in uh, what, what has now become independent Senegal, in the 1960s, where you have, for instance, 100 kids vaccinated and some uh, 70 of them fall ill and some 20 of them or 30 of them die. And this adds up and, and causes some real concern. And one of the things I've, I've done in this paper is I've asked the question, well, well, what's going on here? Why is it that suddenly after the war, these reports prop up again? And how come none of this was being reported during the war? Because the vaccine itself has not fundamentally changed. It's, it's the same culture, essentially. It has the same biological properties. And in fact, ultimately, the, the people who are researching into this discover that it is, in fact, the vaccine itself that is to blame for these side effects. It's not a manufacturing error. You know, it's not some kind of non-vaccine related illness. It's not a specificity of that particular location or the biology of, of those particular recipients of the vaccine. It is, it is the vaccine itself. And what I found is that essentially the act of running these tests in French Africa made it next to impossible to observe side effects for a variety of reasons. The most important one was that the tests were run at such a high speed that nobody really stuck around to observe patients who'd gotten the vaccine. So it turns out that this particular side effect manifests itself some two weeks after you've gotten the shot. And even in the best of cases, the trial participants and then later the, you know, everybody, the, the 14 million people who got the vaccine were not observed for, you know, longer than a week. Um, not at all in the case of, of the mass vaccination program. And, and if you think about, you know, what French Africa looks like in the 1940s, it's really infrastructure poor. There are a couple of cities, Dakar, Saint-Louis, uh, that are built up around French infrastructure. But then, as for the rest of it, there's, there's very little Western presence. So very often, the way you get this vaccine is that you get a, a message from the local resident that you're supposed to show up at this location, you know, Tuesday, two weeks from now, and the location is like 15 kilometers away. So because you want to maintain good relations with the French, because who knows what they'll do if you don't, you take the 15k trek, uh, you meet a 
group of, of soldiers, essentially, who give you the vaccine. You don't really know what kind of a vaccine it is. It's administered the same way as the smallpox vaccine is, but they don't necessarily tell you that this is for a different disease. And then you hike 15K back to your uh, local village. And so, you know, if all goes well, you're then immune against yellow fever. But if it doesn't, what are you going to do when you come down with a huge fever and convulsions, headaches, and, and maybe loss of consciousness? The nearest Western outpost where you could report this, the nearest hospital, is maybe 15K away, probably more, uh, maybe several days journey. So there's simply nobody there to observe these side effects. But that doesn't mean those side effects aren't occurring. It also doesn't mean that, you know, in the 1930s, when the French were trialing this in, in France, in Paris, there weren't uh, quite a few people warning about this and saying, look, we, you guys really have to find a different method for producing this particular vaccine. So at the end of the day, the success story turns out to be quite a bit more complicated. Now, people have tried to do the math on this and, and think about, well, if we extrapolate from the cases that we do know, where small children died because of uh, they were administered this, this vaccine, you know, how many people might potentially have perished during the World War II vaccine, vaccination campaign? And the numbers are quite stunning. They're, they range in the thousands. It's People have uh, suggested that it's up to 3,000 people that uh, that might have died from these side effects in total, um, which would make it one of the the most destructive vaccination campaigns in history. But we simply don't know because, once again, there was no way to observe these people. And then just when talking about the circumstances which allow for this mess to occur, we haven't even mentioned language and cultural differences, the the differences or, or the the potential for misunderstanding between people in very different power structures. So a colonial doctor and a colonial subject are never going to be on the very same page to start with, especially like a rural colonial subject who may not even, not only not share a language, but not, only, not even share an understanding of why you are here or why they themselves are here in the same place in the first place. That's a very com complicated situation, which sort of calls for mistakes. Now, it may need to be mentioned or maybe worth mentioning that originally this yellow fever vaccine was mandated for those who travel to the area. And then later on, it was decided that the residents of the area need to be vaccinated and the economic cost of lockdowns and quarantines was mentioned within the reasoning. So we're back here in the current day with a very similar debate, although quite different vaccines in all fairness, but similar concerns about what side effects or what potential problems to put aside for the sake of a perceived greater good. What kind of implications do you think this story has in the current day debates. Yeah, oh boy, it, it really has quite a few implications. And and we're not going to I'm, like read it into this and take it as like a sheet music. So <laughs> we can yeah, assure no, every sure. listener that we don't have all the answers. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's so interesting because I, you know, did this research well before the pandemic. You know, the, the book came out just as the, the pandemic 
started. It came out during the first lockdown, actually. So I had no idea that this this would become so relevant. But yeah, the first thing that you mentioned that's that's a really clear parallel is this desire to have a kind of magic bullet that would obliviate the need for these kinds of economically and, and politically complicated lockdowns. Because the way this vaccine project starts is because there's a huge political conflict over quarantine and over, you know, what historians call non-pharmaceutical interventions in the 1920s. And this is really quite interesting because it also shows how how much these these non-pharmaceutical interventions turn on politics because the french for a long time have had in their colonies a, a, a number of ways of dealing with epidemics and these you know are pretty familiar to us i think they involve lockdowns they involve social distancing curfews etc but up until the 1920s up until this yellow fever epidemic they have imposed these lockdowns principally on africans and this is precisely because of this rhetoric about civilization that you mentioned earlier. They think that Africans are unhygienic, they're incapable of following proper precautions, and therefore they need to be contained, you know, through the use of force. And the dynamics of the epidemics that are experienced in French Africa seem to bear that out. You know, when plague breaks out in 1914, it hits African communities harder than it hits French communities. Yeah, it's essentially because the French live in better housing that rats don't have access to. But, you know, there's, that's, that's a different story. Now, the interesting thing with yellow fever is that all, most people who live in, most Africans who live in Dakar have some level of immunity to yellow fever because they live in an area where they're likely to have had yellow fever as a kid. Whereas the French in Dakar are usually recent transplants from France. And, and therefore completely vulnerable to yellow fever. So when that epidemic breaks out, it's the French who suffer more. And of course, the African politicians notice this and say, basically, aha, well, look at that. Turns out you guys aren't so civilized after all. Turns out that you guys are just as bad in following instructions. And it actually turns out that it's it's much harder to impose lockdowns on French inhabitants of Dakar because they have a lot more political capital. They're going to make a fuss about it. And, and this is precisely why the Pasteur Institute is, is called in to kind of cut through this political quagmire and start this vaccination program that, first of all, everybody could get behind, French and Africans alike, and two, that would obviate the need for these kinds of interventions in the future. If everybody's vaccinated, then you don't have to have quarantine. And again, the story turns out to be a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, yellow fever is, is still a major disease in, in West Africa today. And the other big lesson to take away from this, you know, there's a saying in the public health community that vaccines don't help people, vaccinations do. And that's, I think, really key in the story, that it, it's not just a story about developing a particular biological agent to prevent disease. It's, it's really a story about the infrastructure of how you deliver it. How do you actually get shots in people's arms? And that part of the story is often overlooked, but that's really where inequalities are introduced where you know certain problems are made visible and other problems are made invisible and we're seeing this play out right now in in real time in exactly the same ways where where we're discovering that um you know for instance the european union was never prepared for doing public health programs right 
uh, and this actually turned out to be somewhat of an issue in the procurement process. Um, it turns out that, you know, some communities have much less public health coverage, that it's much harder to get these vaccines that need to be uh, stored at very low temperatures to them, um, that this is exacerbating, uh, you know, socioeconomic inequalities and racial equalities. And, uh, you know, and global as, inequalities as I... that let that be added, because now there's this very paradox situation when in certain areas there is an abundance of vaccines and not enough people to take them. And in the majority of the world, a good portion of the first, first world, to use this problematic expression included, there is not enough or barely any. So there's this extreme, I find this exhilarating and just genuinely dumb how this is playing out personally. Also speaking from a country where mass vaccination and churning out any vaccine basically in Hungary at least, has been perceived as the silver bullet for skyrocketing mortality numbers for a portion of the time, also leading global mortality rates all, all over the pandemic or overall in the pandemic, even introducing vaccines which were not properly vetted at the point. So, you know, it has a very, very specific tint to it. And then we go through this fast track process of both fearing for not getting the vaccine and then sort of uh, shooting for whichever producer is around. And this also plays out in very strongly class-tinted terms, right? So whoever has access, whoever has the time to go and shop around for something that they trust better, whoever has access to information is going to be just better off in quite a sense. What do you think? Yeah, no. yeah go on, sorry. No, 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 exactly. I mean, uh, you know, globally, we're not going to have, uh, you know, global coverage with vaccines until the end of 2023 by current projections, which is really quite stunning, the kinds of inequalities that's that's going to create. And, you know, the other thing uh, that you point to that I think is exactly right is, is this um, desire to, you know, once vaccines become available in um, you know the global north to really just do away with the uh, with the non pharmaceutical invention uh, interventions as as quickly as possible, um, and you know and this has led to the resurgence of the virus in in a number of places. You know the uh, the United States had new surges of COVID nineteen in in some states that loosened their restrictions too early, and we're seeing this happen in other places too. Um, so this kind of either or thinking where you can either do non-pharmaceutical interventions or you can do vaccines, but there's there's no way to think of them as being um, kind of collaborative in their nature, I, I think is really problematic um, and is really leading to uh, to real, you know, deaths and real human damage that could be avoided at a fairly low cost. You know, I'm not talking about you know, continuing with lockdowns until, you know, 90% of the population is vaccinated. But I'm, I'm talking about just sort of basic um, measures such as, you know, well-funded contact tracing, the use of masks indoors, you know, improving ventilation, you know, these kinds of things. Um, the Estonian government just today announced that um, they are going to um, 
stop the requirement of masking in public schools, which were just recently opened up, um, which in a situation where, you know, um, vaccine uh, vaccines haven't been ma made available to people under the age of 18 seems like a really reckless idea because, um, you know, even if kids are, uh, even if teachers are vaccinated and not all of them are, um, kids can still transmit the virus to each other and then take it home to their relatives who may not be vaccinated. So it, it just seems this, uh, this really reckless policy that's again, like carried by this desire to get away from the, the NPIs as, as soon as possible, because, oh, you know, we have the silver bullet now. Yeah, also let that be added that uh, the initial thought that minors wouldn't be badly affected by COVID it has been proven wrong. And this whole sort of, um, how should I say, utilitarian thinking about fewer children dying, if it's so it's not that big of a problem. <laughs> I find it very, very distressing. <laughs> also speaking from a country where masks are not mandated in schools, um, despite horrifying numbers. Um, but let's talk about another way of avoiding damage at a very low cost in a very different, although related field. This interview which you gave to Linda Kalyundi, basically your conversation with Linda Kalyundi and Bart Pushaw is published in Eurozine under the title Renaming is About Respect. The subtitle reads Museums on Race. And you guys talk about an exhibition which you have already mentioned, the curator of which, Bart Pushaw, came up with a very unique and genuinely extremely cost-effective idea of taking artifacts from Estonian public collections which have some kind of colonial root. Many of them have, for instance, horribly racist titles and just rename them. With, with a respectful title that doesn't take away the humanity of those portrayed in them. How does this come about and why does this stir so much confusion and distress? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting case. You know, I think Bart and, and the museum made this decision knowing that this was going to be provocative. And it indeed has, has been so. It, it led to a parliamentary inquiry where the... Estonian Minister of Culture was called in front of the parliament and then the far right grilled her for, uh, you know, a good hour or so on this very question. So it, it has definitely been provocative. I mean, the exhibit itself is so much more than that. It is a fascinating exhibition. If anybody, you know, happens to visit Estonia over the summer, uh, if that's possible, I highly recommend uh, people check it out. It really looks at the various facets of how race is represented in Estonian art in the early 20th century through the lens of colonialism, but also through the lens of nation building. Um, you know, this is a period where Estonians who, you know, for a long time in the 19th century and before, you know, were considered primitive by, you know, Balto-German and, and Russian elites many of whom thought that, that Estonians weren't really, you know, white, so to speak. This is a moment where Estonians are having this conversation over, you know, like, what well, do we have more in common with, you know, indigenous people around the world? Or do we have more in common with uh, sort of European Herrenvolk? So it's, it's super fascinating. And it is true that as a part of that exhibition, um, Bart decided to retitle some of the, the artworks. And a lot of these artworks have rarely been 
exhibited. They are in the collections of the Estonian Art Museum and the Estonian National Museum, but they haven't been on display as often. And many of them don't really have original titles. They have just titles that have been given to them by curators at one point or another. So it's not like there is you know, authorial intent being violated here somehow. And also the old titles are still there. I think most people would have, would not have noticed, would not have understood that these have been renamed if they didn't have the little parenthetical under them that says original, you know, new title, portrait of a man, original title. You can sort of imagine what the original title might have been. So ironically, that's, I think, why this even became an issue, because otherwise nobody would have really known that these uh, these things had other titles. Um, so I think it's really fascinating and really telling that all of this conversation has revolved in the public largely around these titles and not about the actual content of the exhibit itself. And and the arguments that the you know have come largely from the far right, but not only from the far right, also people who, you know, um, think of themselves as as good old fashioned liberals, are, are sort of what you'd expect that this has, this is a kind of totalitarian practice, that this is akin to uh, censorship, uh, the way it was practiced in the Soviet Union or in, in Nazi Germany, uh, that this is an, ex an example of cancel culture. I've never quite understood how these ha arguments hang together. How can we think that putting artworks on display in the largest and most prestigious museum in Estonia is can, can be considered to be an act of censorship? That is just sort of stunning to me to think about it in the sense. But of course, what all of these arguments are pointing towards is a kind of deflection tactic, right? Is, is a way, it's a way of saying, we don't need to have this conversation. This is some kind of imported American phenomenon of, of cancellation, or it's some kind of foreign totalitarian practice that we don't want to resurrect. So by associating them with these, with these negative things like these historical totalitarian regimes, it's, it's a way of, of getting out from actually having a conversation about the content of the exhibit, which is the history of race and colonialism in Estonian art. And I have to say, they've been remarkably unsuccessful, if that has indeed been their goal. Because of the high profile that this uh, exhibit has had because of these controversies, uh, there's actually been quite a lot of writing done in Estonian media around precisely this question, which I think is great. I do have to a little bit look at you above my glasses and remind you of the very simple observation that when you say you cannot fathom why why this is called cancel culture, that's also a little bit hypocritical of you because you you obviously know that that's how moral panic works. Moral panic exploits any sort of well, basically trend. I wouldn't even say discourse in that sense or an intellectual course. It's just. This is a term frequently thrown around, so this can be sort of pasted on something. Um, do you have a more forgiving reading of this discourse? I mean, I think uh, that's partly, that's definitely true. There are definitely politicians in particular who are just uh, nakedly exploiting this because it's something that fires up their base, because it feeds into a narrative, a kind of preformed narrative that they have. I don't think this applies to everyone who's been talking about this in Estonia. I think there are people who are genuinely concerned 
around how the past is represented, what are the consequences of uh, of repurposing the uh, past artifacts and, and things like that, and who are trying to have a good faith argument about it and who are open to persuasion. And the kind of allergy to practices of, of, of renaming uh, artifacts uh, because of the Soviet past, I can I can sort of understand. Well, uh, in though the post-Soviet I would also, country, yes, I understand that too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a fair point. But I would also remind people that, uh, you know, after 1991, when the Soviet Union fell, you know, the Estonian Republic renamed a bunch of streets because they were named after prominent communists. And they took down a bunch of statues of Lenin principally and Estonian communists and, and Stalin and, and so forth um, because it uh, offended contemporary sensibilities because it was very, it was a reminder of a, of a trauma that people didn't want to confront on an everyday basis. So, you know, I would just ask for uh, visitors <laughs> to extend the same courtesy to the people um, who might be offended by the kinds of sensibilities expressed by this kind of early uh, 20th century Estonian art. Um, so I don't think that the comparison has to be with, with the Soviet period, but I, I can see where some of those people are coming from. Yeah, on that note, let me mention an article which just comes to mind now that you, you talk about remove statues. We published um, not that long ago an article by Ilya Kalinin titled Soviet Atlantis on a very interesting project, basically around the shores of Crimea, which deepened very, very quickly. Around, um, I mean, the sea deepens very uh, quickly around the shores. A bunch of removed Soviet-era statu statues some of which were not removed for a long time because obviously Lenin was long considered a Ukrainian hero for granting Soviet statehood, and it's a whole mixed bag. But some of them were just sunken under the water, are now grown over with sea vegetation in the Black Sea, and people go take scuba diving trips there. And it also just looks genuinely fantastic to see Lenin and Marx and others grown over with seagrass and fish swimming around them. And this gives them a very interesting context. Many of these statues, by the way, represent this, uh, this very sort of, I know it's a, it's a controversial term, but these are very uppity statues where everyone is trying really hard to seem such intellectuals, some of them obviously trying too hard. So it's a uh, it's interesting. Check it out, and we will link to it in the show notes. But um, yeah, no, I've uh, I've I've seen that article, and it's such a it's such a great metaphor too, right? Uh, you know, these statues are submerged, but they're still somewhere under the sea, or you know, in our subconscious, so to speak. And that they're you know, people are so interested in in uh, digging into that subconscious and and seeing what they find. Yeah, I think that's it. Indeed, that's a... but that's that's exactly what this exhibit by the title "Rendering Grace" is about. Is that even though these artifacts that Bart Pushaw curated and gave a new context to, these are present, and this memory that they represent is present visual memory is somehow integral to a collective memory that probably just doesn't want to think of its national community as a racist one, right? This is a re recurring problem throughout Europe, especially for smaller nations in Europe, to say that 
we didn't colonize, so we have nothing to do with this, and this is not our problem. So much so that at least I have come across cases where the reason for not removing certain words from the discourse, which were the equivalents of, say, the N-word in English or others, the reason was that since we didn't colonize, this word doesn't have the same meaning here, which was just mind-blowing to me. Uh, why do you think there's this strong resistance to facing this kind of legacy that nobody currently living is personally responsible for? Because it seems like people really identify with a history that they are not to blame for. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I've heard, you know, that that argument about the use of the N-word is is made equally often in Estonia, too. I mean, I think the answer is precisely in the place where we don't really want to look, which is the role of race in Eastern European ident identity. And we know that the, that history is very complicated, that um, Eastern Europeans have been racialized, um, in complicated ways by the West. We can think of, you know, Larry Wolf's excellent book, Inventing Eastern Europe, where he talks about how Eastern Europe is portrayed as this kind of close other to Western Europe, so a place that is both similar to, but also uh, indelibly different from Western Europe. And that, that's definitely, you know, I think an experience that people um, who come from the region, you know, particularly if they've moved to the West, for instance, um, over the past couple of decades have experienced where, you know, people are not taken quite as seriously. You know, there's a whole range of Eastern European stereotypes, um, you know, the Polish plumber and, and so forth that are associated with... What's with the with... cabbages? I hear that all over the place. Like everybody <laughs> eats cabbages in Europe. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. We particularly, particularly we do, right? Um, I mean, I so... do. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't I mean, that. like, what's wrong with cabbages? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's restore... Um, the reputation let's of make, cabbages, such an amazing university. Yeah, I mean, it was great for lunch. Yeah, no, sorry, it's just that it's, it's the silliest I think that I could come up with because usually I would try and rationalize these arguments quite like you did before. <laughs> I would try to look for some kind of root or some kind of trace in there, but sometimes there just isn't. Yeah, yeah, no, but that's 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 precisely it. There's there's a lot of this stuff floating around, and at the same time, you know, this this creates a kind of profound anxiety in people where you know there is a desire to assert one's whiteness in a lot of Eastern European communities to say that we you know we do belong to you know the cultured civilized nations of of Europe, and that's a, that's a tremendously difficult anxiety to work through. You know, it's it's one that's you could have a Freudian reading of it where precisely because this this category is not easily awarded, it becomes that much more desirable. And and that's why, you know, any kind of association that, that would say that, okay, maybe this history is, is a bit more complicated is sort of flat out rejected. So I think, you know, like I think the history of, of race in Eastern Europe plays a huge part in this, even in places, you know, that haven't had colonial territories, as is the case of uh, with Estonia. But, you know, we should also say that a lot of places in Eastern Europe have had colonial territories. Um, or some of them you know. had explicit slavery, but not for, yeah. not in African territories, but for Roma residents whose ancestors for had been around for, for like instance, four yeah, or five centuries. So they just, you know, just fusing the Roma discourse into into this 
just slightly that this whole Eastern European obsession with whiteness also and and the rejection of this discourse comes with the backdrop of Eastern European Roma populations being very poorly integrated and the the racial and uh, the racist sentiment again growing against them. Not that there was any like settling point. Yeah, or we could also talk about uh, Scandinavia and its relationship to the the northern minorities, the Sami and and uh, so forth, um, which again is which is similarly a colonial relationship. Yeah, so there was there was definitely a lot of history there that doesn't kind of fit into um, the standard narrative of colonialism, um, but that is related to it and that is worth exploring. Now, I do want to ask you about Viketkar as well which is the Estonian culture journal that, that's part of the Eurozine uh, network of culture journals. And it's just a personal favorite of mine, despite not being able to read it. So I only consume it through translations that we publish and the reviews. You guys just come up with the most prolific um, topics and just a topic or range is astonishing. What's the driving logic of Vikerkad and what's the sort of curating um, curating mechanism that you choose topics um, for issues from bodybuilding through the housing crisis to so much more? But I do remember the first Vikerkad issue I ever saw had a very oiled up bodybuilder on the cover. And the journal itself has a relatively conservative layout contrasting with very provocative images on the cover. So how do these come about? Is this well, just everything uh, that's interesting to you guys? Well, there's, there's, there's a silly answer to this and there's a more thoughtful answer to this. And the silly answer is that in we, both. We, we sit down with the editorial team and bounce around ideas over Messenger or, or Gmail until something sticks. That's how it practically looks like. Uh, but of course, the more thoughtful answer is that there are, there are some principles um, that we keep in mind. And, um, you know, one of them, I think, is uh, we're interested in topics that we think get very one-sided coverage in Estonian media or topics that don't get coverage at all. So for instance, and this I think, you know, oftentimes has put us a little bit ahead of the curve in like uh, creepy and, and disturbing ways. For instance, last year we did this housing crisis uh, focal point with you guys and, and that, you know, the question of real estate wasn't really being discussed in Estonia near, nearly as much as it should be. And, and lo and behold, you know, over the past two and three months, this is all that everybody's been talking about is just the the meteoric rise of housing prices in Tallinn, um, you know, as a consequence of the corona crisis. Uh, you know, we put out an issue on far-right authoritarianism the month before Trump was elected. We actually had Trump on the cover. So I'm, I'm hoping that this, this doesn't quite continue because we're now preparing a, a theme issue on war uh, that's coming out in June. So I think, I, I hope that's going to be like abstract and, and irrelevant. But, you know, looking at the world, like you can sort of see where where that idea was was coming from, I think. So yeah, so so one principle has been shedding a light on perspectives and themes that don't get enough coverage. And then the other one, I think, is, is sort of connecting the local to the cosmic, uh, so to speak. We're, we're interested in themes that we can showcase both from, you know, the kind of the humanities writ large, 
that we can, you know, translate classic pieces from other languages for, but also that we can connect to specific kinds of social and political struggles within Estonia itself. So, so whenever we do a, a special issue, we try to have something in there that is very kind of politically topical, that, you know, touches on some kind of aspect of, of social inequality, uh, but that we can also relate to some of these large themes in the humanities. Yeah, let me mention, uh, now that you brought it up, the housing focal point, it's titled Room Temperature, Housing in Crisis. And uh, you and Christoph Leimer from the Austrian Urbanism magazine, Derive, curated this vast focal point, by the way, which was a, a bit of a, a personal treasure for me, paying rent in two gentrifying capitals in Vienna and Budapest. It was somehow close to my heart, <laughs> but not only for this reason, but in part. And um, one of the pieces which I really personally liked is the last one currently in the series by Ingrid Rudi. And this examined the gender aspect in housing design and how how spaces and shared spaces are organized about gender rules. I have to say this was published on the 23rd of December. So this was my Christmas present for myself by Vikerkar. And it took me like six hours to finally publish the article because the children kept it walking in on me because I don't have a secluded place to work. <laughs> and, and don't have a room not... of one's own, one might yeah. say. Yeah. So, you know, after, after this article, I went and had a key mate for the room where I work, thinking this is a drastic measure but they can always knock on the door. <laughs> this was the first time I felt entitled to this too. So thank you specifically for this, but it also deals a lot with the history of gendered spaces through um, very specific examples in housing, sort of um, housing movements really, showing how very different image, for instance, modernism shows when you go beyond the facade and find mum, closed up in the kitchen behind a sort of handover um, handover window, but closed away from the shared spaces. So I really strongly recommend this. Is there anything that you guys are up to? Uh, you are working on an issue on war. It's very encouraging. It's going to be a light read, I assume. Are there any plans in Vikerkat that you want to mention? Yeah, well, I think the, the war issue is going to be really interesting. So again, we're we're trying to look at facets of war that don't get aired as much in uh, public discourse. So, you know, of course, uh, there's a lot of talk about Russian saber rattling and, you know, the good things that Estonian troops are doing in, in Afghanistan or in Mali you know, all the time. Um, but what we're really interested in are issues such as the rehabilitation and resocialization of, of veterans and people with PTSD. Uh, we're interested in the experience of women in war, but also the experience of women in the world as a kind of war, right, being uh, subjected to and, and threatened by violence in a way that men generally are not. Uh, we're interested in the history of demilitarization and pacifism. Uh, so again, the, the goal is to expand the conversation around the things you can talk about when you talk about war. 
um, which is something we generally try to do. The other exciting thing that uh, we've done over the, the past couple of years is that we've, we've tried to uh, put out one issue every year where we just focus and really drill down on one particular topic. So we, we publish this kind of long, uh, usually investigative piece by one journalist that encompasses the entire issue. Um, so, you know, we have reviews and, and fiction and poetry as always, but then where we normally would have um, six or seven different essays, um, we, we just have one. Um, so the, the first one we did last year was on this, um, this project to build a pulp mill in the university town of Tartu that became the focal point of this big environmentalist movement and that, that actually succeeded, that managed to um, to stop the construction of that pulp mill. Um, and that opens up into a whole variety of questions around the relationship of Estonian identity to nature, um, the role of capital in politics, um, the relationship between science and politics. And so it's explored there from all kinds of facets. This year we did uh, an issue on the uh, Estonian president, Konstantin uh, Petz in the 1930s, who drove the country, uh, you know, away from the road to democracy towards uh, authoritarianism, really exploring what was going on behind that decision, what kind of person was he, what kinds of ideologies about statecraft he had. And uh, for next year, we're planning on doing a long piece on the history of the women's movement in Estonia, encompassing everything from the late Tsarist period to women's movements in the Soviet Union to contemporary feminism, which I'm really excited about because it's a history that has really not been written in any kind of systematic fashion in Estonia. There are sort of bits and bobs. Uh, people have written about some specific people. Uh, there's a bit more work on the post-1991 period, thanks to a lot of excellent art historians and contemporary artists, but there's really no sense of sort of historical continuity. So I'm really looking forward to that piece. It's it's also by one of our best authors who's written for us for several years, Pirat Carro, who is an artist and, and poet herself. I, I think these are you know, the kinds of things that uh, we're really looking forward to doing, the kinds of projects that step outside our, our usual format a little bit and, and try on something else for size. I'm really interested in all of these. Keep me posted. And the listeners, if they read Estonian, can see all of these coming up in Vikerkar. Should they, unfortunately, not be acquainted uh, with Estonian, they can read from Vikerkar in Eurozine and also in the Eurozine reviews frequently checking in with Vikerka's most recent publishing. Thank you, Otto. Thank you, Rekha. You've listened to Gogari, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors from our network of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. You can read Otto Velmet's article in Eurozine by the title Promise and Peril, on how a French yellow fever vaccination campaign went horribly wrong in West Africa in the 1940s. Otto's conversation with Bart Pusha and Linda Kalyundi is published in Eurozine titled Renaming is about respect. And the focal point he curated on the housing crisis is called room temperature. You can find links in the show notes. 
Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I'm Reiko Kingopop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.